Well, it is time to begin. So good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Thank you for being here. We have come to the end of Unit 4, and that means it's going to be our time for break. In July and August, Sunday School will be going on break, but we have one last lesson before the break where we're going to review the last nine lessons and pay attention to some of the apologetic questions that came up with some of the parts of scriptures that we discussed. By the way, it will be a break from Sunday School, but it won't be a break from days because uh, I will be, Lord willing, I will be, my wife and I will be in New Jersey the first couple of weeks in July. So we'll be visiting uh, starting July 7th, I believe it is. We'll be there that Sunday. We'll be there the next two Sundays. So it'll be great to see you all again in person, to fellowship with you, and also to bring the word of God to you as uh, I'll be preaching. So even though it's a pause for Sunday school, God willing, we can have continued fellowship and we can continue to look at the word together. But today is review. We're going to do a couple of things in today's class. Let me show you our agenda. We're briefly going to just recap what are the lessons we've been in in this unit. And then we're going to turn to watch and discuss a video presentation from Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham specifically, entitled One Blood, One Race. And we'll finish by reviewing and discussing the video a little bit. Let's pray before we continue. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the ability to be able to look into it and to be fed by it. We need your word, oh God. I pray that you continue to feed your people today and give us understanding as we hear from Ken Ham and give me ability to aid those who are listening today to understand, to remember, and to apply the word, the precious word that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so where have we been over the last nine lessons or so? Unit 4 has been mostly about the life of Abraham, though we started actually still with Babel. In lesson 31, we had our second lesson on Babel entitled One Race, the Human Race, and we saw from Genesis 10 how the Bible actually tells us where the first people groups originated and where they went. came from the Tower of Babel, and they spread out from the Middle East around the world. We also discussed how a basic understanding of genetics shows why we have the different people groups today and even why they look a little different. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that issue later on in today's video. Then in lesson 32, we looked at the life of Job, all 42 chapters of the book of Job in one lesson. And if you remember, we saw that not only does Job teach us that we are to trust in our sovereign God, especially through suffering, but that trust includes humbling ourselves before God, recognizing there are some things that are just beyond us. And that's just the way we're made. We are not meant to comprehend all things, nor should we demand explanation from God, but we humble ourselves before him. Lesson 33, we finally get to Abraham and we see the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. God called Abraham by grace. Wasn't anything particularly special about Abraham reported in the text? And yet God chose him for blessing and brought him to the land of Canaan. In lesson 34, we saw how Abraham and Lot separated. An important event in terms of God working out his sovereign promises to Abraham. Because the promises are going to be to Abraham and his seed and not Lot and his seed. And we also saw that Abraham's trust in God and his confidence in an inheritance even beyond the physical world enabled him to be generous with his nephew. In lesson 35, we witnessed God's dealings with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. We saw that this account is just as much a testament to God's compassion and his patience as it is to his holiness and severe judgment. And of course, we compared our own state to those of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we realized we're really not different. In fact, we're worse considering the blessings that we have received and the revelation we have received and yet not responded appropriately. That's why we need Jesus Christ. In Lesson 36, we looked at God establishing a formal covenant with Abraham, a unilateral covenant, not based on Abraham's performance or ritual observance like circumcision. We also saw God's patience with Abraham and Sarah as they sought to fulfill and bring about God's promises by sinful means. 
by embracing Hagar and even Ishmael as an heir. We learn that we are not to do what they did. That is to try to obtain God's promise in our own strength by sin. In Lesson 37, we looked at the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17 and the birth of Isaac in Genesis 21. We saw that circumcision was designed not as a meritorious work or necessary ritual for salvation, but a sign, a sign of the unilateral covenant of blessing that God gave to Abraham and those who are in Abraham's chosen seed. I also saw that it's God's will for, in order to bring about ultimate good for his people, it is his will that they will wait. They will often be made to wait in life. And with the casting out of Hishmael and Hagar, we saw again that God's promises, even salvation, comes about by God's gracious choice, not pedigree, not meritorious work. In Genesis, or in Lesson 38, we looked at the great test of Abraham's life, being commanded to sacrifice Isaac. And we saw Abraham function as a model of righteous faith for us, his confidence in what was unseen and in the promises of God. He knew that God would even have to bring Abraham back from the dead because God had promises that he was going to fulfill through Isaac to Abraham and Abraham's seed. We also considered the connection between Isaac and Christ and Christ's work on the cross. You know, I cautioned you about seeing a direct foreshadowing, but certainly there is an indirect foreshadowing. Man's needs would be provided by God. God will provide for the needs of his people, and that ultimately is deliverance from sin, death, and God's wrath. And that would be accomplished by the ultimate seed. In one sense, Isaac is a type of Christ, and that is he is the chosen seed, just as Israel would be. But the ultimate seed, the ultimate chosen seed, is Jesus Christ, as identified in the New Testament. And he's the one who would provide for man's greatest need and for the seed's greatest need. Now, last week, Genesis and Lesson 39, we looked at how God provided a bride for Isaac in Genesis 24. And we saw this account is a great testimony of the loving kindness and the faithful provision of God to the chosen seed, which is what you are if you are in Christ. We also considered the danger of looking to circumstances, or feelings, or new revelation to discern God's will. Though these things, or feelings and circumstances, they play, in, they play a role in understanding and applying God's will. Ultimately, we can only be sure of God's will via submission to where he expressed it, which is in the word of God. And this is just part of the sufficiency of scripture. We have all things that pertain to life and godliness. We are thoroughly equipped for every good work, as 2 Timothy 3:15 to 17 emphasize. So ultimately, we understand God's will by his word. And that means that and understanding his word comes about as we fellowship with other believers, as we pay attention to the gifted teachers that God has given to the church, as we study the scriptures ourselves, as we pray for understanding. But ultimately, God's will is expressed in his word. He does have a secret will, a providential will, but that's not what we're supposed to seek, nor is it profitable to do so, because that's going to happen no matter what. But God says, pay attention to what I've revealed to you, both the direct commands and the principles, because they show us how to walk in life. So that's where we've been, the last nine lessons and now the tenth review. What questions do you have that we weren't able to discuss over these last nine lessons? Just wanted to give you an opportunity in case there's something you were wondering about or a comment you wanted to make, but we didn't have time for it in class. Anything before we move on? Okay, I don't see any hands, so we'll move on. I, I really enjoyed going through this last unit with you, and I enjoy the, I'm looking forward to the units to come as we move our way through the Old Testament and trace the promises, even starting in the garden of a chosen seed who's going to save God's people. Let's turn now to the second part of our review today. We're going to listen to a presentation from the president, Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham. You know Ken Ham by this point. This presentation is entitled One Blood, One Race. And this goes back especially to what we said about the flood and Babel. This is an apologetics-minded video focusing on three main questions. They are, how do we answer the question, where did Cain get his wife? 
How do we explain the origin and the differences among the races, the so-called races of people today? And how are evolution and racism logically connected? The video is about 27 minutes. We'll watch it and it'll take a little bit of time afterwards to review and discuss a few things. So let's turn to the video now. One of the most asked questions I received from skeptics of the Bible concerns how we as Christians can believe that all human beings are descendants of Adam and Eve, and yet there are different races of people. Well, in this session, we're going to start from the Bible to show that we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, and that real science confirms that. And it's easy to understand how there are different people groups, not different races. It's because of the Tower of Babel that split up the human gene pool. And did you know that every human being is actually the same skin color? It's a matter of how much or how little that you have. You see, there are answers to these questions, and that really helps skeptics understand the Bible's history is true, and therefore, the gospel based in that history is true. One of the questions I get asked over and over again, before we even discuss uh, that, talking about the so-called races, one of the questions I get asked over and over again goes something like this. Well, if God made Adam and Eve and they had Cain and Abel, where do all the people come from then? The question is often asked this way, where did Cain get his wife? In fact, I think I've been asked that question 5,342,355 times uh, over the past 30 years. It doesn't matter what country I'm in or where, I, where I'm at, people seem to have, have this question, well, where did Cain get his wife? You know, how do people come about if, if we all go back to Adam and Eve? So let me give you a little test to start with here. Can you marry your relation? Yes, no, probably only after counseling. <laughs> and, and the reason I ask that, because there are people that say, now, you're not allowed to marry your relative. Well, I got news for you. If you don't marry your relative, you don't marry a human, then you've really got a problem. <laughs> you see, if we all go back to Adam and Eve, it means we're all related, right? See, Jesus Christ stepped into history. The Son of God stepped into history to be Jesus, the God-man, to be our relative, to be a descendant of Adam, to die for the descendants of Adam. He became our relative. And so from perspective of one man and one woman, obviously we're all related to each other, whether you like it or not. You're related to me. I'm related to you. By the way, it makes a big difference when you see someone you don't like and you say to yourself, huh, they're my relative. <laughs> does make a big difference. Well, Let's understand this from a biblical perspective. First of all, 1 Corinthians 15:45, Paul tells us the first man, Adam. There's one man, Adam. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, Eve was given that name because she was to be the mother of all the living. Not some of the living, all the living. It's very obvious from Scripture that there was one man, one woman to start with, Adam and Eve. Acts 17, verse 26, Paul, in talking to the Greeks, said God made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. We're all related. We all go back to one man, one woman. Well, in that case, if we have Adam and Eve, and then the Bible tells us about Cain and Abel and Seth, where did Cain get his wife? I was at a restaurant in London once, and the chef found out that we were there because we were running a creation seminar near the restaurant. And he heard that we believe the Bible, and so he came over to talk to us. And he said, you believe the Bible? I said, yes, I believe the Bible. He said, I don't believe the Bible. I said, you don't? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, well, the Bible says uh, God made Adam and Eve, and then there were Cain and Abel. Where do all the people come from then? And I said, oh, well, Genesis chapter 5, verse 4 says Adam had sons and daughters. And he looked at me and he said, oh, I never read that far. <laughs> By the way, that's a problem with a lot of people. They don't read that far. They don't read enough. But there it is. Adam had sons and daughters. So get rid of all these misconceptions and outside ideas and so on. If there was Adam and Eve and they had sons and daughters, only one man and one woman to start with, and if marriage is one man for one woman, which was what the Bible clearly teaches, then originally, originally, notice I said originally, brothers married who? Sisters. Now as soon as I say that, People say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, you're not allowed to marry a relative. Oh, wait a minute, we are all related. 
Now, it is true that today you don't marry a close relative, right? We don't marry a close relative today. But Abraham was married to his half-sister, and that wasn't a problem. So why wasn't it a problem back then, but it, it's a problem today? And actually, it wasn't until the time of Moses and Leviticus that God said no longer can close relations marry. And see, so let's understand this. And, you know, a little bit about genetics just helps us understand even further, although the answer's already there, if you think about it. When God made Adam and Eve, they were perfect. Everything was very good. But Adam sinned. And as a result of Adam's sin, rebelling against God, Adam, if you disobey, you will surely, what? Die. So God withdraws some of that sustaining power. So now we run down, the whole universe runs down. We run down, we die. Our body dies. You see, because God no longer holds everything together perfectly, what happens now is that there are mutations, there are mistakes, copying mistakes from one generation to the next, and they keep accumulating more and more over time. Actually, after 6,000 years, we've got a phenomenal number of mistakes in our genes. It's called a genetic load, and it's a real problem. It's a real problem. And so here's the problem today. If you're closely related, you're more likely to inherit the similar mistakes from your parents and if those mistakes get together with sperm fertilizer's egg, there's an increased likelihood of deformities, problems in the offspring. That's why today it's better to marry someone further away in relationship from you. So uh, where one has a, a bad gene, the other uh, will have a good gene. So the good gene tends to mask the bad gene. And by the way, you can even see the result of that because if you look around uh, the, the room, we see people with their eyes a little crooked or nose a little out of whack or our chin's a little out of whack. Those mistakes are there. But if you think about this, the further back in history you go towards Adam and Eve, there'd be fewer and fewer mistakes. Adam and Eve were perfect. Their children wouldn't have had that many mistakes. It wouldn't have been a problem for brother to marry sister, provided it was one man for one woman. That's what marriage is all about. But by the time of Moses, God brought in that uh, law for the Israelites that no longer were close relations allowed to marry. And, of course, today, close relations don't need to, to marry anyway because there's so many people. But, see, it's very easy to understand that, isn't it? Now... I was saying in one of the other sessions that I was on a radio program once when I answered this question, a Christian radio program actually, and a man called up and he said, I'm an atheist, and if you believe that about Cain's wife, that, that brothers married sisters, that's immoral. Well, that's when I first said to him, you're an atheist. You can't accuse me of being immoral. <laughs> you don't believe in absolutes, no absolute authority, and you say everyone has a right to their own opinion. How can you decide what's immoral and what's moral? That's your opinion. You can't accuse me of being immoral. And then he said, well, that's incest. I, I, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Actually, the word incest is a modern word, just like the word dinosaur. The word dinosaur was first invented in 1841. Now, the word incest is a modern word. And we put a whole lot of things under incest, uh, some of which have always been immoral. That's true. But not brother and sister marriage in the context of biblical history and marriage being one man for one woman. And I even said to this person, I said, you believe in evolution. You don't believe in God, right? So for you, marriage is whatever you want to, want to make it to be. You can define it any way you want, with anything or anyone or whatever you want, right? And you think we've got a problem? <laughs> no, you're the one with the problem. But, you know, it, it really is easy to answer where Cain got his wife. And it seems this has been such a big stumbling block for so many people around the world. But the answer's already there in the Bible anyway. Read Genesis 5-4, Adam had sons and daughters. Read about the doctrine of marriage. It's one man for one woman. The, the law against close intermarriage for, for the Israelites didn't come till the time of Moses. Paul tells us Adam was the first man. Genesis 3 tells us Eve was the mother of all the living. Do you realize it's all there if we study God's word? And, of course, an understanding of genetics and mutations helps us understand even a little more, doesn't it? And helps throw some light on all of that. Well, that's easy to understand. Okay, what seems to be a little harder to understand is then what about all the so-called races? You notice I keep saying so-called races because I want you to think about this for a moment. If we're all descendants of Adam and Eve, then how many races of people biologically are there? Only one. There can't be any races because we're all descendants of one man and one woman. Well, you know, before we can talk about this, then, then in, instead of talking about different races... I'm going to be talking about there's different people groups within the one race. And those different people groups have some distinct characteristics. That's true. American Indians, Fijians, you can tell them Australian Aboriginal, and, and so it goes on. So how, how could that come about? How can we understand that? And to do that, we're going to do a little basic course in genetics. 
Now, some of you are sitting there saying, I've never studied genetics. I don't even like genetics. Look, if you're married and had kids, you study genetics. It's as simple as that. And be assured, I do things from a big picture perspective, basic principles. It is so much more technical than what I'm going to do for you here, but the basic principles apply. And it also is something that teaches us you don't have to be a PhD scientist to talk about these basic principles. When you read Genesis chapter 1, the Bible tells us that God created the animals uh, and, and plants after their kind. The phrase after his kind, after their kind, concerning the creation of the, the animal kinds and so on in Genesis 1, is, is used there ten times. God created after his kind, after their kind. The implication is that each kind reproduces its own kind. Now, before we go on, the Hebrew word for kind in Genesis 1, we believe equates in the classification system that we use in classifying animals and plants, phylum class, order, family, genus, species. We believe, uh, for many reasons, that the word kind equates to the family level of classification in most instances, uh, to the family level. Some people think that the Bible is not scientifically accurate because they think that where it states after his kind or after their kind means that the Bible is saying animals don't change. The Bible is not saying animals don't change. It's just saying each kind is going to produce its own kind. That's the implication there. In fact, Charles Darwin, as he sailed around the world in his boat, the Beagle, one of the things he noticed was that animals change. Let me ask you a question. Do animals change? The answer is yes, animals change. Dogs change. What do dogs change into? Dogs change into dogs, exactly. What do cats change into? Cats change into cats. What do elephants change into? Elephants change into what? Elephant. And so it goes on. You can have different species of elephants, your stegomastodons and your mastodons and the Indian elephants, the African elephants, dogs. You've got dingoes, wolves, coyotes, jackal, fennet, foxes, but dogs always remain dogs, cats always remain cats. The secular world makes this statement. The origin of the domestic dogs from wolves has been established, suggesting a common origin from a single gene pool for all dog populations. So they're saying all the domestic dogs came from something like wolves. And of course, wolves and all of the other dogs, like dingoes, etc., are all of the same family anyway, So that, which means they're all of the one kind. They're saying something like this gave rise over time to even these, and eventually even these. <laughs> now, some people say, well, how could that give rise to that? <laughs> That looks like a dog. We're not sure what that looks like. <laughs> and actually, what I would say is this. Some people say, isn't that evolution when you go from that to that? Evolution? No, that's a downhill process. Uh, evolution really teaches an uphill process. You know, you're getting more and more information and, and getting better and better and so on. And what we have here is a loss of information. In fact, it's probably a bad analogy, but um, I, I sometimes use an analogy like this. You know, if you take motor cars, okay? Now, we have a little Kia Rio. Sorry if you sell Kias, but it's, it's an older Kia Rio. It's sort of, I, I look on it as the poodle of the car world. Uh, for this reason, that if you take one little thing off, it doesn't work. Now, if you have a Rolls Royce, you have all these optional extras, and you can take them off, and it still works as a car, right? So the wolf is like the Rolls Royce of the dog, and the, the poodle is like... The key area. Okay, it's down there. Now, actually, when you when you get to the poodle, see if you go beyond a poodle, that's it. That, I mean, that's the end of the line in dogs, basically, <laughs> right there. And some people say to me, "Well, did God make poodles?" Well, God made the original dog and said everything was very good, so there were no poodles to start with. <laughs> actually, poodles only exist because of sin. Remember I said how those mutations occur now? And, and see, in, in a poodle, like most of our purebred dogs, you've got all these mutations or mistakes. Really, a poodle is a great example of talking about a sin-cursed world. So will poodles be in heaven? Think about it. There's going to be no sin in heaven and everything will be perfect. So you can't have a poodle in heaven, obviously. All right, let's go on here. Now, we don't know how many dogs God made originally. Let's say he made two dogs, okay? And they got married and had kids. They got married and had kids. And they got married and had kids. And eventually end up with lots of dogs. Now, in genetics, we use a convention. We label genes with capital letters. Big A, little a, big B, little b. It's much more complicated than this, just basic principles. And the capital letters represent dominant genes. Little letters represent recessive genes. And so here we have a male and female. Let's say the male and female here, this represents two dogs. Let's say something like the wolf. 
And then in sexual reproduction, you get one set of genes from the male, one from the female, and so you could get this combination uh, here. And then you could get these other combinations that you can see here. Now, if you look at this, look at the one that's got two big A's, two big B's, two big C's. Notice something. This one has a different combination of information to the parents, so it's going to look a little different to the parents. But because these parents are dogs, what is this one here going to be? A dog. But it's going to look different. Does it have new information? No, no new information. It does have something new. Do you know what it's got new? A new combination of information. Okay? And it's actually got less information than the parents. You know why it's got less information? Less variability. It doesn't have the little a, little b, little c. This one here, this represents, well, this is what I like to use to represent the analogous to a poodle. Little a, little a, little b, little b, little c, little c. See, how do we breed our purebred breeds of dogs? We, oh, look, this one has a short nose, this one has a short nose, let's breed these together. Let's eliminate all the genes for long nose and get the short nose genes all together in one dog. And that's how we, we get our purebred uh, varieties, if you like. Now, I want you to look at this. If you breed a poodle with a poodle, what are you going to get? Poodle. Pretty sad. That's it. <laughs> now, could you start with poodles on their own, breeding poodles with poodles, and eventually get back to a wolf? No, you can't, because you know what? You're missing the big A's, big B's, big C's here. See, it's got less information. Now, if you start with the wolves again, theoretically, could you eventually get poodles? And the answer is what? Yes. Aha. Now, how much information is there in our genes? How much variability has God put in there? Well, look. The number of atoms estimated to be in the entire universe is this number. One uh, followed by 80 zeros. That's 10 to the 80th power. That's a big number, the number of atoms estimated in the universe. If you took one man and one woman from this audience, do you know how many children you could have potentially without having two with the same combination of information just from the variability in your genes right now? It's been estimated at this number. That number is so big. You think you've got a big family? That's a big family. I mean, that's zillions. It's, 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 it's incomprehensible to us. People, here's what I want you to understand. From a Darwinian evolution perspective, the secularists believe we start with no information, matter, that somehow produces a language system and information, DNA, and over millions of years, you get zillions of bits of new information to produce bigger and bigger pools of information to get all the different kinds of animals and plants. The Bible tells us God made the kinds to start with, so he made the big pools of information to start with, and I'm going to say to you, what we observe over time is redistribution of information and a loss of information, the opposite of evolution. Let's illustrate it this way. Noah's Ark, two of each kind, seven of some, but two of every kind, a land-dwelling, air-breathing animal, went on board Noah's Ark. So dogs, there would have been two on Noah's Ark. If they're all the one kind, the one family, two dogs on Noah's Ark. They come off Noah's Ark and you end up with lots of dogs again. But they're not going to stay together. They're going to split up and move away from each other. And when you think about of all, all the incredible variability that God already put there in the genes, what's going to happen over time, some information's lost, recombination of information, different combinations, and you'll end up with different species forming from the original gene pool. That's not evolution. It's the opposite of evolution. See, evolution requires new information. This is just operating on the information that's already there. And over time, natural selection, you heard of natural selection? See, Darwin was right about natural selection. Darwin was right about speciation. We see adaptation, but it's not evolution. It's the opposite of evolution. What's taught in the public school textbooks as evidence for evolution is actually the opposite of evolution when you understand it. Let me explain it this way. Here's a dog that has an SNL gene, another dog with an SNL gene. These were the dogs on Noah's Ark. S for short hair, L for long hair, SNL together give a medium hair length dog. So they have an offspring that inherits one S gene from one and one S gene from the other. It has short hair. It looks different than the parents. Has it got something new? A new combination of information from information already there. Okay? Now, you can get another offspring that inherits an S from one and an L from one and it looks like the parents. And then there's one other combination. And what's that? An L and an L, you have a long-haired dog. You say, well, that's got something new. It's got long hair. No, it's a new combination of information that was already there. That's what's new. Now, you imagine. 
And this is really to help us understand what's called natural selection, speciation, adaptation. It's much more complicated than this, but just some basic principles here, big picture. The dogs move towards a cold climate. So those with short hair and medium hair get cold. And they die. <laughs> and now you're only left with dogs that have algenes, long hair, who can only ever produce offspring that have algenes. They can never produce offspring with medium hair or short hair again because they've lost the S gene. They've lost information. Imagine dogs move towards a hot climate. In a hot climate, those with long hair and medium hair overheat. They die. And now you're left with dogs with only S genes who on their own will only ever produce short-haired dogs. And so you can imagine over time, with redistribution of information, new combinations of information, loss of information, you eventually form lots of species of dogs and the kids in our schools are taught, and that's evolution. And they use the word evolution for that, because the word evolution just means change. But they're really meaning that's a mechanism for one kind into another. People, when you truly understand this, if our kids were taught the truth about this, they would understand, but this is the opposite of evolution. Absolutely. And by the way, what we're seeing totally confirms what the Bible says. God created kinds, pools of information to start with. See, the Bible's true. Now, what I want to do... I want to apply that to the humankind. And so I want you to think about this. God made Adam and Eve, and then by the time of the flood, there are eight people that survived on that boat, Noah's ark, Noah and his family, and they came off the ark, and numbers increased again. Well, how would we get distinct people group with, with distinguishing characteristics, like the American Indians, Fijians, Hawaiians, Eskimos, Australian Aborigines, people groups that have dark skin, people groups with light skin and so on. Something in history would have to split up the human gene pool like we sort of did with dogs and separate them from each other. Something, is there anything you can think of in human history that could split up the human gene pool? After the flood, Noah and his family gave thanks and offered sacrifices to God for preserving them. God told Noah to go and multiply and fill the earth. Noah's family flourished and multiplied, but they did not spread all over the earth. Instead, they moved down from the mountains of Ararat and settled in the plain of Shinar and dreamed of building a great city. Come, let us build a city and a tower to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, looked down upon them and saw the city and the tower they were building. They are united and speak the same language. Now nothing they imagine to do will be impossible for them. So God went down and confused their language so they could not understand each other. And God scattered them over the face of the earth and they stopped building the city. They left Babel by foot, by cart and by boat. Because of the language barriers, each family group became isolated and developed distinct physical traits and cultures. But all came from the three sons of Noah, so they all share the same genes and all share the same promise of the Savior, the seed which God promised to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And you see, that's really it. That's it. I mean, we could all go home now, right? It's a Tower of Babel. God gave different languages, Genesis 10, the table of nations, uh, the family groups moved away from each other according to their language groups and so on. And as a result of what happens in regard to which, which genes moved in which direction and which combinations survived best and loss of information, other things, you end up with distinct people groups. It's very easy to understand. It's not hard. The Bible has the answer right there. Now, let's delve into that in a bit more detail. In 1859, Darwin published a book that in many ways has changed our modern world. 
And the title began this way, In the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. And the rest of the title of the book was this, or The Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. Now, The Origin of Species book was primarily about animals. It wasn't about man. But it's very interesting that this book that talks about the different races and so on, and The Origin of Species, at the end of The Origin of Species, Darwin says this. He says, in the distant future, I see open fields for far more important researchers. Psychology will be based on a new foundation, that of the necessary acquirement of each mental power and capacity by gradation. And he goes on and says, light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. In other words, what Darwin was saying in The Origin of Species, I'm going to apply this to man. You see... In Victorian England, it was, I mean, it was hard enough coming out and saying, you know, the animals evolved and trying to convince the culture that. Imagine if he came right out immediately and said people evolved. No, he waited until the evolutionary ideas sort of permeated the culture and then a number of years later, he published the book, The Descent of Man, where he applied it to man. And as a result of this, what happened? Well, the late Stephen Jay Gould from Harvard University made this statement. He said, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Here's something I want us to understand. Evolution is not the cause of racism. Sin is the cause of racism. But when you're taught an idea that there were lower races and higher races and primitive races, and you think you might be one of the advanced races, you could see how it could actually fuel a type of racism and prejudice if you think that you're in a higher race than somebody else. And that's exactly what Darwinian evolution did. You know, in Darwin's book, Descent of Man, and I'll, I'll explain it to you in a moment, he says that some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. At, at the same time, um, he talk, talks about the apes will no doubt be exterminated, and then the break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider, uh, for it will intervene between a man and a more civilized state, as we may hope, even then the Caucasian and some ape as low as a baboon instead of now between the Negro, Australian, Aborigine and the gorilla. What does that all mean? tell you what it means. He's saying this. You've got the apes back here and the Australian Aborigines here, fairly close to the apes, and people from Africa, he's saying too, and then the Caucasians over here. And he says, when these savage races are gone, then the gap between the apes and the Caucasians is going to be wider. How is that for fueling racism and prejudice? All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. This is a, so just great information here. But it comes it comes down to a kind of a stunning note there at the end, right? What a statement from Darwin about people. It should make you mad that he would say such a thing, especially because of what the Bible says. Let's take a, a little bit of time though to review some of the main ideas from the from the video. Let's go back to that first question. Where did Cain get his wife? What's the answer? What's the answer? Yeah, it had to be his own family. He married his sister or perhaps his niece. And why was it okay? Oh, I forgot. I can actually show you these questions. There we go. Why was it okay for ancient people to marry close relatives? I mean, we even see Abraham doing this. But it's no longer okay now. What's the answer? Yeah, Rod. Right. I appreciate your answer there, Rob, because I think it's very, it has a good nuance. The Bible doesn't tell us why there was that exception made in the beginning. We can infer some good reasons for that. And you heard Ken Ham present one of the main reasons for that. But God doesn't explain. He does specifically forbid it during the time of Moses. And it's, it's assumed afterwards. But he doesn't explain why it was okay before. It may be, and I think it's a good explanation, that it's simply because God was being merciful due to the corruption that was occurring in man. The genetic load that was accumulating the different errors in man's DNA 
God says, for a time, it's okay for you to marry close relatives, but eventually that's not going to be good for you. So out of mercy, I forbid that. I forbid you from marrying your close relative. And that's the way it is for us today. By the way, can you think of any other times in the Bible where God makes an exception or normally says, you may not do this, but in other times or in a specific instance, he says, I command you to do this. Can you think of any other examples? I'll give you a few. Um, can talk about the annihilation of the people of Canaan. Actually, this is one of the things that skeptics will use to try and get at Christians. They'll be like, oh, you believe in God? Well, guess what your God commanded? He commanded the whole people to be destroyed, men, women, and children, babies. He said, kill them all. What kind of God do you serve? Well, let's face it, that's not what God commands for us to do today. In fact, even with Israel, God said, when you deal with the nations outside of Canaan and you go to war with them, you're to go to war in this way. And you're not to just destroy and slaughter them. No, you're going to seek to make peace with them first. And even as you go to war, you've got to do it a certain way. But why was it different with Canaan? Why did God say, destroy them all? This was different from what God normally commanded. But this was part of God's purpose in bringing judgment on the people of Canaan. You remember what God said to Abraham, I believe it's in Genesis 15, where he says, the iniquity of the Amorites, used as a term to describe all the inhabitants of Canaan, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Your people are going to be in Egypt. I'm going to bring them back here because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So God was paying attention to the sin of the people of the land, and he says, I'm eventually going to judge them. And he used Israel to do that. That was a special thing. That was not normative. In fact, God forbid the way that they were interacting with people of the land. That's not the way they would interact with other people. And certainly not the way that we are interacting with other people today. Some other examples, David's men eating the showbread. Remember, David actually eats bread that, according to the law of Moses, is not allowed for anyone to eat who's not part of the priesthood. But David was allowed out of mercy in a particular instance. David and his men needed food, and God said, or God approved of their eating it. And Jesus even explicitly confirms this in the New Testament. Or even some of the things that we looked at together. Hagar and Ishmael were dismissed from Abraham's family and from inheritance. But the law of Moses says you can't do that. If you have a son of a loved wife and you have a son of an unloved wife, you can't take the son of the loved wife and make him the inheritor if the son of the unloved wife was born first. Yet God essentially did that with Abraham. Why, why was God allowed to do that? Well, God has his reasons. God said, no, it is in Isaac that your seed will be called. I will still bless Hagar and Ishmael, but they are not going to be the inheritors. So what we see God doing with allowing close relation marriages in the beginning and not allowing it later, it does fit into this, this small pattern of where God is able, if he has a good reason, to, uh, to make exceptions when it comes to certain commands. Now, this, by the way, is different from God tolerating and not approving of certain sins. We do see this also in the scriptures. We see polygamy in the Old Testament, which is not according to God's design. But God did not come down hard on polygamous persons. It was sin. It was outside of God's design. And it brought a lot of conflict into people's families. But God tolerated it in a certain sense. And same thing with divorce. God hates divorce. But God did allow provision according to the Mosaic law for divorce. And even, even if many of those divorces were not justified, this wasn't an approval of divorce, but it was, it was something that God tolerated for a time. Or even the lies of certain righteous persons. In the Old Testament, we see Abraham lying, we see Rahab lying, we see David lying. And overall, these people are approved as righteous, even though what they're doing is sin and contrary to the nature of God. God does not lie. And yet some of his righteous people did that. This doesn't mean that God approved it or God said in exceptional circumstances, these things are righteous. No, God tolerated those things. But this thing about allowing close relation marriages is a little different. This is something that 
like those other instances that I cited earlier, God made an exception where it was not unrighteous to do those things. There was a good reason for it. And these exceptions, by the way, you may notice they have a they have a pattern. Many of them are, are done out of mercy. And certainly it would be a mercy to the human race that God would allow one family to create all the families on the earth rather than saying, oh, I'm sorry, that's it. You're, 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 not allowed to, you're not allowed to reproduce. The human race is over. Now, out of mercy, God permitted that. And then out of mercy, God said, no more close relations. That's that's the best we can say. God doesn't give us the actual, the, the full explanation, but that seems to be the situation. So it's not that the Bible is inconsistent or that God is inconsistent. No, there is an answer from where people came from. And Cain, yeah, he got a wife from his own family. Along these lines, let's discuss further some terms having to do with evolution. What is the difference between natural selection and what's called evolution? Yes, Mark. Mm. That's right. Yeah, that is the big difference. So we could talk about the differences in a number of different ways. One simply is natural selection is true and evolution, especially the idea of macroevolution, is not true. Natural selection is observable and as Mark said, it involves the survival and proliferation of certain combinations of information, certain favorable combinations of information in a certain environment, all within a kind, but evolution, what is sometimes called macroevolution, as opposed to microevolution, which is just another term for natural selection. Evolution says that, or evolution is not observable, and it involves the acquisition of new favorable genetic information, which causes an animal to change kinds. So natural selection, a favorable combination of information within a kind, whereas evolution, the acquisition of new information to change kinds. That's not observable. That's not true. So there is a difference between these things. We can acknowledge natural selection, adaptation, speciation, microevolution, any of those terms. But macroevolution or evolution as it's largely understood as a concept, it doesn't work. So why is it incorrect to say that in the beginning, God created all the different species we have today? I think you can see the answer to this, right? The Bible doesn't say that God created the different species. It says he created the kinds. And that that term, it doesn't line up with the term species as we know it today. God only created the large, the larger pools of information, the broader families of animals, and they later became the variants or the species that we know today. By the way, this makes me sometimes think, you know how we have pictures of the animals in the garden or picture of the animals on the ark? And usually they're all recognizable, right? You can see monkeys or giraffes or like lions. But if we're being totally accurate, that's probably not what the animals looked like back then because those are variants of the species which probably only came later. And to get all the variants that we know today and that have been known in history, you had to have earlier types of that, that animal kind that contained all that information. So there are probably two cats that went on the ark that didn't look like lions or didn't look like tigers, but they had all the information for those types of cats within their bodies. Also makes me wonder what kind of variants, both of animals and people, will we never know because that information has died out, especially in the flood. I mean, I'm sure there were there was dog information that existed in the time of Noah that didn't that wasn't contained in the two dogs that went on the ark. And so those two dogs are the only ones that survived, and they, they're the ones who reproduce all the other dogs we have. So we never, we'll never see what other information those dogs in the world of Noah's day have. Uh, really, the same thing is also true of people. It's amazing that, as Ken Ham brought up in the video, even two of us humans today who get married, the amount of genetic variability is incomprehensible. And yet there are so many other variants of even the humankind that we'll never know because it was only eight people who survived on the ark. 
And of course, that isn't the only time that genetic information has been lost in history. Different species go extinct. Different people, um, different people groups are sometimes exterminated. But certainly, there was a large loss of genetic information in the flood. Still a lot left, but it's just part of the corruption that is in the world because of sin. From this information, we can answer the question, from where did the different people groups that we have today arise? What's the answer? That's right. That's the flood in the Tower of Babel. The confusion of languages resulting in the separation of, the, of families, it caused the situation where we're going to get a only certain gene pools isolated from one another and then due to their environments or due to their different cultures, reinforcing certain combinations of genetic information as favorable. So for example, a group of people separate from the others and there are some within the group who, have, who are particularly strong and they're the ones who do well in the environment that they move to, that information tends to last. And so that people group with that information is favored and that, that particular variant of genetic information continues on. But because these groups are isolated from one another and they reproduce in their own communities, people tend to start looking like one another within their community, but different from people outside that community. And that's where you get the different people groups. That's where you get the, slightly, the, the slight differences in how we look even today. And certainly there's the development of unique cultures and unique values, even unique religious traditions Unfortunately, many of them turning idolatrous almost immediately. But that's where we get the different people groups we have today. We're still all one race. We're still all humans. And we're still all related if you just keep going back far enough. But it was the separation, the genetic isolation of communities, large genetic isolation. There's still some mixture going on that comes from the Tower of Babel, along with some aspects of natural selection that explains why we look different and why we have different combinations of DNA today. But, and this is the final question I wanna bring up with you. No matter a person's ethnicity or culture or nationality or appearance or socioeconomic status, the Bible is clear that a human is still a human. And it gives us a number of very clear principles when it comes to treating our fellow human today. And what are those principles? For the sake of time, I'll, I'll just say them to you briefly. Number one, no matter what a person looks like or where he comes from, that person is made in the image of God. He was originally designed as an under ruler of God in this world, and he deserves honor. He or she deserves honor for God's sake. This includes those who don't look like they deserve honor. Maybe they're disfigured, maybe they're poor, Maybe they, they had something happen to them so that they, they don't recommend themselves by their appearance. But it doesn't matter. They're still made in the image of God. They deserve to be treated with dignity. And it's also true for those who don't act lovely, who don't act in a, in a pleasing way. Think about for your own life. Do you have enemies? Do you have certain people that you despise? Certain people you think, oh, that person is just a terrible person. That may be true, but remember, that person is made in the image of God. You can think of maybe some politicians that, or celebrities that you think, oh, that person is just so evil, so terrible. Don't forget that person is made in the image of God. Therefore, that person is to be honored by you in the way you talk about them and even the way you think about them. The Bible says this explicitly. At the end of the flood account, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood will be shed. Why? Because man was made in the image of God. He must treat man with dignity for God's sake. But it's not just about murder, because James says, I believe it's James chapter 3, that with our tongues we bless God, and with our tongues we curse men who have been made in the image of God. And what does James say in response? These things ought not to be. Rather than speak against 
much less kill someone who's made in God's image, what are we to do? We're to love them like we love ourselves and even love them the way that God loves us. Not because they deserve it intrinsically because of the way they act or because of somehow they're earning it, but because of honoring God, because God called us to that. And certainly because God treats us that way. So think about your own relationships. Do you value others because they're made in the image of God? Do you value others for God's sake, even when those people do not act lovely towards you? Or even when those people are rebellious against God? Now, there is a sense that we have righteous indignation with the wicked, and that is legitimate. But it doesn't, it doesn't invalidate or get rid of the fact that we also, at the same time, are to love and honor them for God's sake. So all people are made in the image of God. The Bible's clear about that. All people have the same fundamental problems that come from what happened in the garden. We all have problems, fundamental problems with sin, death, God's wrath, and we need rescue. And we've all been given the same, or we all have opportunity to respond to the same good news of rescue in Jesus Christ. And once someone comes to Christ, all persons are equal salvation inheritors, equal inheritors of blessing before God. We don't have second-class citizens in God's kingdom. It's true we have different roles in the church, and they are ordained by God, and those things can even break down based on gender and uh, based on the gifting that God has given certain people. But in terms of our salvation inheritance, we are all equal, which is why Paul is able to say there's neither Jew nor Greek nor man or woman nor slave man or free in Christ. So, again, think about for yourselves how you interact with people, how you think about people. Is it with those biblical principles in mind? Or do you say to yourself, oh, he's from that people group. He's obviously inferior. Or he's obviously decadent just because he's part of that people group or she or whoever it is. Or do you think of yourself superior because, hey, I'm an American. I'm obviously one of the superior persons of the earth. <laughs> no, we're all, we're all equal. We've all been made in the image of God. We all have this fundamental sin problem, but we all have the sweet blessing of salvation in Christ if we come to know him. That brings us to the end of our review. Questions about what you heard today? That's a great question. How does 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says we do not regard anyone to the flesh any longer, how does that factor into this discussion? I have some thoughts, but I actually want to go back and review the context of that statement before, before I answer. But that is a, that is a good passage to mention, uh, because I can't remember if he's referring to something specific or something more general. But that's a good passage to go to. I'll come back to that another time. Any other questions? All right, well, that brings us to the end of Unit 4, and I believe that's the end of our first year with the Answers Bible Curriculum 2nd Edition, so a bit of a milestone. Like I said, we're going to be on Sunday school break for the next two months, but when we come back, we're coming right back into the lives of the patriarchs, moving on from Abraham to the lives of, to the lives of Isaac and his descendants, Jacob, Esau, and then Jacob's 12 sons well, at the end of the next unit. I think we'll be with Joseph in Egypt. Of course, all of this, these are not just isolated, unrelated episodes taking place in the history of the world. No, this is God's plan of redemption and bringing about the chosen seed as promised in Genesis 3.15 and as promised to Abraham. All of it is working out according to God's perfect plan of salvation. Oh, we're going to see more of how that unfolds when we come back. So I look forward to doing that with you. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we thank you for the truth of Scripture, and we thank you, God, how it liberates us, how it 
how it confronts our racism, God, how it confronts not just our racism, but just our, our hatred, our selfishness, our pride when it comes to our fellow man. Lord, that is evidence of what the scripture says about our corruption, about our sin, and about our need for regeneration, our need for a new creation in you. We thank you for those of us who in Christ, God, we have been made new. That old man is gone, even as the, the sin principle still clings to us like defiled garments, yet we have been made new creations. So we don't, we don't have to walk the way that we walked anymore. In fact, you've called us and enabled us to walk new. So I pray, God, for the people of Calvary and anyone listening today that, that they would indeed do that, that they would love one another, that they would regard one another with honor because, God, they, they believe what your scripture says. Lord, forgive us for how we have failed in this sense and even when we continue to fail, but cause us to progress by your spirit. Help us to believe your scripture and Holy Spirit, please work in us in such a way so that we do love others as we ought and that we do speak the truth to one another, even the gospel, so that everyone, no matter what kind of background they have, might be saved and might know you and have eternal life. I pray that you would accomplish this by your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.